Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome to Murder Mile, a true crime podcast, an audio-guided walk, featuring many of London's untold, unsolved, long-forgotten murders, all set within and beyond the West End. With very little violence in his past, mental health professionals would agree that the two-day killing spree of Daniel Gonzalez had occurred without warning. But in the days leading up to this massacre, they would miss one last chance to stop him forever. Murder Marley's research used authentic sources, It contains moments of satire, shock, and grisly details. And as a dramatization of the real events, it may also feature loud and realistic sounds. So that, no matter where you listen to this podcast, you'll feel like you're actually there. My name is Michael, I am your tour guide, and this is Murder Mile. Episode 137, Daniel Gonzalez. The Lost Boy, Part 3 Today, I'm standing on Makepeace Avenue in Highgate Hill, N5, 30 miles northeast of Daniel's home in Knapp Hill, more than 70 miles north of the attacks on Peter King and Marie Harding on the south coast four and a half miles southwest of the butchering of Kevin Malloy, and three miles southwest of the assault on Kumas Constantino, coming imminently to Murder Mile. Makepeace Avenue on the Holly Lodge estate was built in the early 1920s, originally as housing solely for single women working in the city. Whereas now, it is a pleasant mix of private and council-owned semi-detached houses and mansion blocks, maintained by the community and Camden Council. With many of the buildings constructed in a uniform design of gabled roofs, red tiles, white wattle and daub, and black timber frames, blessed with stunning views of the city, it's a nice place to live. Here you might expect to hear the soft shush of a milk float, the polite chatter of a friendly postman, and the delicate snip of gardening shears. Nothing offensive or foul. At worst, you might witness a dog 
enthusiastically yapping for treats, an erroneous bit of litter in the wrong recycling bin, or core lummy, a mild outburst of some F and Jeff as a retired accountant incorrectly fills in his crossword, or the chairwoman of the WI discovering that her buns have come out a little bit black about the edges. But you wouldn't expect to find a happily married and loving couple brutally murdered in their own home. Two days before the first murder and attempted murder, Daniel suffered a major psychotic event, which should have been the overriding catalyst to get him the help that he needed or to cut his bloody rampage dead in its tracks. But like so much of his mental health history, it was dismissed as irrelevant. And yet it was here, on Friday the 17th of September 2004, at 8am, that Daniel would kill Derek and Jean Robinson. But so horrifically sadistic was their slaughter, that it led a court of law to believe that Daniel wasn't just sick, but a psychopath, hell-bent on bloodlust. I should be locked up. I should go to the electric chair for what I've done. If I had done that to myself, stabbed myself up, there would not be a problem. At a little after 4.30am, Kevin Molloy lay collapsed on the desolate pavement to the side of Tottenham High Road. Discovered 70 minutes after the attack, by the time that a doctor had declared Kevin as dead, with his kill count and frenzied bloodlust unsated, Daniel was already seeking his next victim. Only as before, his movements lacked clarity and his decision-making was muddy. If he had headed north, south or east, this heavily armed man would have encountered supermarkets, churches, cafes, car parks and stations. If inflicting a maximum casualty count was really his mission, trapped inside a bus, a train or a tube, with hundreds of commuters, he could have unleashed a truly horrific attack. But he didn't. Instead, he headed west, past the Swan pub where Kevin subbed his last pint, and along Philip Lane, a small road dotted with residential houses and industrial units. If attacking lone strangers was his mission, whether factory workers changing shift or postmen on their rounds, this place was perfect. But again, he didn't. Instead, he ignored it all and strolled one and a half miles southwest to Frobisher Road in Hornsey. And somewhere along this route, whether at Tottenham Green, Duckett's Common, or Downhill Park, he dumped the knives. With no disguise, no weapons, no map, and having previously attacked lone people in isolated places. For no reason whatsoever, everything which had worked would cease.
Friday the 17th of September 2004. Day 2. Victim 4. By now, the dawn had broken. As Daniel walked into Green Lanes, a junction off Turnpike Lane Tube, packed full of residential houses and several local shops. The streetlights were off, the news agents were opening, and the slow roar of traffic had begun to swell as a low sunrise illuminated its length. As his body count rose, this wannabe serial killer was getting into his stride with a tried and trusted method to his murders. He crept quietly from behind. He slit their throat with a sharp knife. He inflicted several hard fast stabs and then he fled. Only now, all of that would change and no one knew why. At 6.50am, he entered Frobisher Road, one of 20 identical residential streets with long lines of red and brown brick terraces dotted with parked cars, tiny gardens and wheelie bins. Fitted with UPVC doors and windows, they were secure but not impregnable for a convicted burglar like Daniel. With the street's residents beginning to wake, he slipped off Frobisher Road down Harringay Passage, a thin shadowy alley running beside their back gardens. Here he spotted an unlit house. He climbed over a tall fence, smashed a glass window pane to a silent kitchen, and broke into a family's home as they slept. The family were Kumas and Cristela Constantino, a loving couple who lived with their elderly mother and their two little babies who were fast asleep in a crib. Daniel didn't know their names and he didn't care. To him, they were just numbers, notches on a scoreboard and one step nearer to his place in infamy. With his heart pounding, gripping a stolen eight-inch kitchen knife in his sweaty palm, as the drip, drip, drip of four sinister voices supposedly guided his sadistic deeds, with five sleeping victims trapped inside a locked house, here he could kill with impunity. As from downstairs, he stalked, he was silent, and then he was struck. Having heard breaking glass and creeping feet, still dressed in just their pajamas, Kumas and Cristela spotted the knife-wielding assailant in their downstairs corridor and sprang into action. Fueled by a fire to defend their loved ones at any cost, although unarmed, Kumas grabbed a pink baby cradle and started whacking Daniel over the head as the knife was plunged into the helpless man's arm and chest. Kumas would later state, The cradle fell down. He tried again to stab me. I grabbed him by the hand and he bit me. But having only ever attacked easy targets, the elderly, the frail, the vulnerable and the drunk, Daniel was unprepared for the couple's onslaught. 
As Kumas would state, I bit him on the neck. And to defend her bleeding husband, Christella fought back with whatever she had. Later stating, I got my slippers and I hit that man with my slippers. It may seem pretty silly, but it was enough. So as Christella ran out the front door, screaming at the top of her lungs, she woke the neighbours, alerted the police, and Daniel fled. Kuma survived with only minor injuries, and Christella was shaken up. But owing to their courage, their family was safe. As with the attack on Peter King, this was another failure for the wannabe serial killer. He was easily overpowered, and with no mask or gloves, his face was seen, and he had left behind his fingerprints. Saturday the 11th of September 2004, four days before his killing spree, Daniel went to a rave in Hackney, East London, where he sunk a mind-bending cocktail of speed, ecstasy, LSD, cannabis and ketamine, all washed down with great glugs of spirits and energy drinks, as his battered body and brain was repeatedly assaulted by doomcore music. Many mental health professionals had diagnosed Daniel as in the grip of a drug-induced psychosis. Which makes sense, as with so many illicit stimulants, psychotropics and sedatives fighting in his own system, side effects could include paranoia, anxiety and depression, as well as auditory and visual hallucinations, which can mirror and mask schizophrenia or any number of personality disorders. Sunday the 12th of September 2004, three days before his killing spree, Daniel returned to his home in Nap Hill. Being exhausted and dehydrated, he did very little except rest, as he was physically and mentally spent. And although he slept solidly for the rest of the day, the drugs were still active. Monday the 13th of September 2004, two days before his killing spree. The time was 8.10am, as Leslie's partner, Stephen Harper, sat in his car on their drive at Southwood Avenue. He would state, I was just rolling a cigarette, and the next thing I knew, Daniel sprinted past me without any clothes on. Only he wasn't streaking for kicks and giggles, as darting past filling schools and rush hour traffic, this dark naked man with terrified eyes ran like he was being chased by the devil himself. Two police officers, PC Fellows and Rowley were dispatched, but along with Stephen Harper, they were unable to locate Daniel anywhere in the village. 
returning to Southwood Avenue. I opened the front door. I knew he was home because I could see him through the living room window. I could see him pacing up and down. I walked in and there was no sound. He'd obviously heard me come in and it all went quiet. I said, Daniel, I've been looking for you in Knapp Hill. He said, I wasn't in Knapp Hill, man. In a really strange voice that I'd never heard before, I could just sense that something wasn't quite right. So far, Daniel hadn't hurt anyone except himself. Daniel would later state, That morning, I was punching myself in the face, trying to give myself black eyes. I tried to break my nose by jumping face down onto the dustbin, and I threw myself down the stairs about three or four times. I was going mad. I've never been that ill before. I think it was a mode of self-harm. I wanted to degrade myself. I don't know why I did it, to be honest. I've absolutely no idea. Concerned for his stepson's well-being, Stephen went to Woking Police Station to report the incident and to set the wheels in motion of a mental health intervention. As Daniel was unable to tell fact from fantasy or truth from lies. Stephen said, I thought if I go down there, they'll take me more seriously. But the police's powers were limited. No officers attended, and the police receptionist's notes went missing. Even Daniel would later admit, I was running around the estate naked, and I didn't get arrested. That would have easily prevented those crimes from happening because I was in a very bad way. As quick as she could, Leslie arrived home. Daniel had done well over the last six months, staying at home and keeping out of trouble. But this was the worst she had seen him for nearly six months. And it had been two months since his last psychiatric assessment, where the doctor had described him only as okay and fine. Inside, the kitchen was strewn with knives, one of which, a five-inch steak knife, would be used to brutally stab Marie Harding to death. And although, as Leslie would state, I didn't know something was going to happen, but I was scared. For too many years, being bounced between specialists, every time we asked for help, or Daniel did himself, we would have to wait for a crisis to occur. Finally, a crisis had occurred. Her boy was sick and a danger to himself. So Leslie thought, this is the crisis. Now they have got to help. But after three attempts to call the duty social worker, who was described as indifferent and passive, Leslie was told to assess her son and to contact her local psychiatric hospital if she felt in any danger. Had he been assessed and sectioned by a professional, 
a tragedy could have been averted. Tuesday, the 14th of September 2004, one day before his killing spree. Being physically, mentally, and emotionally exhausted, Daniel spent the day in bed. I had a really rubbish life, and I wanted to take it out on someone else. And that's as far as his planning went. Wednesday, the 15th of September 2004, day one. Peter King and Marie Harding. Friday, the 17th of September 2004, day two. Kevin Malloy and Kumas Costantino. With a tally of two dead and two injured, the 50-50 hit rate of this wannabe serial killer was at best mediocre. So still fuming from a second failed attack, in which his neck was bitten and his head was beaten with a pink baby cradle and a pair of lady slippers, Daniel hopped in a taxi to Highgate Cemetery. Having fled Frobisher Road at 7am, this 3.8 southwesterly journey took 20 minutes, and having asked for directions to the Holly Lodge estate, he arrived by foot at 7.45am. But why did he come here? At 7.50am, Daniel was witnessed on Makepeace Avenue, randomly pressing buzzers on a block of flats. But no one called the police. At one residence, an elderly lady opened the door and saw a young man with a large knife in his hand. But he didn't attack her. Being frail, vulnerable and alone, she was perfect. But maybe the voices said no. Or maybe one more victim just wasn't enough. Friday the 17th of September 2004 at 8am. Day 2. Victims 5 and 6. Derek and Jean Robinson were the epitome of good, decent people who had dedicated their lives to helping disadvantaged children. As a highly regarded paediatrician and lecturer in children's health, Derek had worked in many war-torn and famine-riddled countries like Nigeria and Uganda, while Jean had worked as a communications officer for Christian Aid. To say that they cared about their fellow man would be an understatement. In 1994, after more than 40 years enriching people's lives, they both retired. But as humanitarians who had charity in their blood, being unable to rest with so much horror in the world, Jean taught music to underprivileged children and Derek volunteered for the Medical Foundation for the Care of Victims of Torture, working with teenage Iraqi asylum seekers who had been traumatized by the war. 
1999, they moved into 24 Makepeace Avenue. And although private, they quickly became a key part of the estate. Derek was a steady voice in the Holly Lodge Community Association. Jean drove the elderly to lunch clubs and bingo, and they were both active in their local neighborhood watch scheme. By 2004, Derek and Jean Robinson were enjoying the retirement they had earned. They had two daughters and several granddaughters. And so beloved were the Robinsons that upon hearing the news of their deaths, many of their neighbors and friends needed counseling from a local priest. But Daniel didn't know any of this, and he didn't care. As to him, they were just numbers. At 8 a.m., Derek and Jean sat eating breakfast. The morning was bright and warm. Abruptly, the doorbell rang. This was unexpected, but not a worry, as although the decorator was due about now, trusting him with his own key, he usually let himself in, but maybe he had misplaced it. With their kitchen out back, Derek got up and walked along the hallway towards the dark green door. Its small window pane frosted for privacy, but through it, he could see the familiar silhouette of a man. Only this was not the decorator, but Daniel, with a blade in his fist, and at least two more people to kill. With his heart pounding, a 12-inch knife in his palm, and the drip, drip, drip of four sinister voices goading him to fulfill his goal. As Derek unlatched the lock, from behind the door, Daniel stood. He was silent. And then he struck. I remember thinking, ready, steady, go. And then I jumped up. I stuck it all the way in. It was such a long knife. There was no chance for the poor guy. I stabbed him once, and then I stabbed him again. I wanted to kill him quickly, so I stabbed him in the throat. So fast and savage was the attack, that he didn't even have time to defend his face, his neck, or his chest. Dashing to her husband's aid, as hard as Jean fought, this unarmed woman was no match for a knife-wielding psychopath who repeatedly stabbed her with every ounce of force. The woman was really strong. I started feeling really sorry for her. I got the knife and then I went right through her throat and stabbed her loads of times in the heart because I wanted her to die quickly. So frenzied were their deaths that the hall's walls were splattered to head height with their blood. And in the attack, even Daniel had sliced open his arm and his leg. And having spent their lives living side by side, together, Derek and Jean would die. Four people were now dead 
Only this time, Daniel didn't flee. As soon as I got in there, I actually stood and had a breather. And I thought, okay. Inside his victim's home, safe behind their thick brick walls and locked doors, I felt clean, orgasmic. I'd washed all the rubbish out of my life. I felt better. It is something I live for. It's a really good buzz. Killing. At that moment, so sated was Daniel's bloodlust that he stripped naked in the kitchen. Unperturbed by the two bodies near his feet and their still warm blood oozing between his fingers, that he decided to take a shower. At 8.05am, using his own key, the decorator let himself in. Inside, he witnessed the bodies, the blood, and a half-naked man who shouted, Sorry about this, mate, as he fled out of the back door. The police were alerted, and paramedics attended. But for these two pillars of the community, it was too late. At 8.10am, Daniel caught the 214 bus at the Oxshot Avenue stop on Highgate West Hill. Heading south, for almost 20 minutes, he sat quietly and patiently among the commuters who were unaware of the atrocities that this clean-cut young boy had committed. At roughly 8.30am, he returned to King's Cross Station, but he didn't head home and he didn't collect his bag. Instead, he asked the station staff if they knew of a place where he could take a shower. As they didn't, he headed towards Soho and armed with two more knives. For the next four hours, he vanished. Daniel was living his dream of being Freddy Krueger for the day. Just days earlier, he was a nothing and nobody but a lost boy with a few morbid dreams. I will be a serial killer. But now, he was. In his disturbed little brain, the name Daniel Gonzalez would forever be hailed amongst the pantheon of British serial killers. With as many confirmed kills as Robert Black and Robert Maudsley, and one more than Peter Tobin, Stephen Griffith and Patrick McKay. Technically, he wasn't a serial killer, but a spree killer. But Daniel didn't care about such pedantry, as what he wanted was infamy. Across a two-day killing spree, two people were injured, four were murdered, and many families, including his own, were destroyed. But had the authorities taken him seriously, if they had had him sectioned and treated as a mentally unwell man who was a danger to himself, a tragedy could have been averted. But having been ignored, death had returned to London and one more life would be taken. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to Murder Mile. 
That was part three of four of Daniel Gonzalez, The Lost Boy. As always, if you enjoyed that, there's some unscripted waffle and extra info about the case after the break. But before that, as all the big commercial podcasts love to do, here's the credits to the show. <coughs> Murder Mile was researched, written and performed by myself. It was edited by myself, directed by myself, produced by myself. The artwork was by myself, with all the sounds created by myself. Michael was also the runner, the T-boy and the fluffer. He was also the PR team, the marketing team, and he does all of the social media, the IT, and he handles all of the complaints. Yes, unlike those big corporate podcasts who are funded by broadcasters and networks, here at the end of each episode, you won't hear a long list of people who have collectively managed to churn out a whopping six episodes a year. And for that, having paid iTunes a small fortune, They make it to the top of the podcast charts, having only released a promo. Hmm, that's strange. Murder Mile is a one-man operation. Everything is created by myself, with just a laptop and a microphone, with which I keep you entertained across the year by churning out high-quality episodes every week. I don't compromise by hiring others. I will never let anyone else write or research an episode and I will never outsource the edit to an external producer. As Murder Mile is my baby, and I feel that you deserve only my best. So to help this small, independent podcast, you can write a glowing five-star review. That's always nice. Share an episode with your chums on social media. That's very nice too. Or, and only if you can afford it, please sign up to Patreon, as even a $3 donation goes a long way. And for that, you get loads of goodies in return, as well as my thanks. A big thank you this week to my new Patreon supporters, who are Gary Gromowski-Cook, Lynn Domsala, Ragen Hald Nylon, Nolene Rankin, and Elizabeth Funden. I thank you, and I bless all of your little cotton socks, even if they're not cotton, but a nasty polyester hybrid mix. As mentioned, Murder Mile was researched, written and performed, and everything else by myself, with the main musical themes written and performed by Eric Stein and John Books of Cult With No Name. Thank you for listening, and sleep well. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. That was all right. That wasn't too bad. Wasn't horrific, even though even though we got a, a man outside who decided to do some mowing outside. Oh, Diet Coke time. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Extra Mile. That was all right. That wasn't too bad. I was kind of, it wasn't I, I, I was trying not to overwrite it this time. It's a little bit longer than I would have liked, but sometimes I overwrite it and there's a lot of things that I can't pronounce, even though I've written it. And I go through all my script afterwards and I double check it. And in my head, I can read it. And, I, and then when I come to say it, it, it all goes tits. So even though in rehearsals, I can read it fine. Sometimes when I get to this bit, it just doesn't, my mouth doesn't want to work. And I don't know why. So, oh, let's, uh, uh, have I introduced us? I haven't. Uh, welcome to Extra Mile. Of course, Extra Mile time. Uh, where, uh, as mentioned earlier, oh, this isn't compulsory. You don't have to listen to this bit. So if you're new to the podcast and you're thinking, what the hell is this? And you're thinking, oh, I don't like this. That's fine. You don't have to like this. I, I don't particularly like it myself. It's all right, but it's not It's not the main part of the show, which is the part that you've just listened to that's all hard work that takes bloody ages. This bit takes nothing, nothing. It's, it's, it's twaddle, but people love it. So I still do it. So yeah, there we go. Uh, so you don't have to listen to it. You can switch off now. That's not a problem at all. Uh, thank you very much. Goodbye to everyone else. Whew, we're here. Right. I'm going to uh, open up the windows. I'm going to get rid of, uh, it's not warm today, but it's a bit foisty indoors. It's a bit foisty. So I'm just going to open up, open up, uh, the side windows. Oh, oh, I, I locked it when I went out. Yes. Oh, so there we go. Hang on. Hang on. Hang on. Oh, just need just need a little bit of air. Otherwise, it is foisty. Cool. That's better. There we go. Open up these as well. There we go. Pop on the. I've already prepped. I've already. Pre- oh. I've already prepped my uh, tea. I think. Hang on. Let me check. See, when I do things out of sequence. Yeah. When I do things out of sequence, I throw myself off. Right, yeah, as with last week, uh, instead of me recording on a Thursday morning and then powering through and editing Thursday and cleaning, spending all day Thursday cleaning up the audio, Friday doing the edit, Saturday doing the edit, what I'm trying to do now is get myself uh, ahead of the game. So I'm I'm trying to make sure I'm, I'm all written and completed and rewritten by... Wednesday lunchtime and then I record and do a little bit of an edit on Thursday and then that means that I can do a little bit longer days Thursday Friday which means I can get Saturdays off or get myself ahead of the game which is great which I need to do because uh uh yeah I got my uh, eye specialist appointment coming up soon so I need a whole day off for that which would be good and I've got my second Covid jab uh, ooh, uh 
probably the day after this goes out, I think. If this goes out Thursday, yeah, next Friday. So I need to get myself ahead in case I'm sick. I probably won't be, but you never know. As was my tip last time, I got really... Uh, I did lots of cycling and I got really pissed. And thats I didn't seem to notice if I got sick because I was too busy uh, being uh, tired and pissed. Uh, and... Oh, I have cut, I cut my hand. And I've got uh, a mate's birthday coming up as well. So I want to try and make sure I can get to that. Um, important new important news uh as an update from last week as uh i would have mentioned last week uh, I'm, uh my walking tours are are completing at the end of this year i'm kind of wrapping up the tours it's kind of been a hard time for tourism but i'm trying to wrap it all up now so um uh i've emailed a lot of people who have valid vouchers already and who currently have uh uh tickets that need to be reassigned and things like that but um, if you have vouchers that you haven't used yet, um, there, there's multiple options that we can do. Right, so this is really important. Uh, obviously, we've still got tours going along to the end of the year. So if you can do, please book on a, a Murder Mile tour. Even if, you're, even if your voucher has expired, just email me. That's fine. I will... I will uh, tweak your voucher and therefore you can use that into any tour up until the end of the year. So it'd be lovely to see you then. Um, if you can't attend one of the tours, but you know someone who kind of lives in London or the UK and would like the tour, or you think, you know, you're thinking, oh, it's birthdays, I can't be asked to buy them a present, I'll just donate them. I, I can I can reissue that ticket to them. That's not a problem. So yeah, just email me as well and say, I want to donate this ticket to my friend. This is their email address. I can do that. That's not a problem at all. Uh, third option that we can do if uh if you if you uh, can't go on the tour and you don't want to donate your ticket to anyone what you can do is just say to me um uh, can you donate the money to charity what i'm going to do is for all of the tickets that aren't used at the end of the year when when murder mile is all where the, just the tours are all wrapped up what i'm going to do is i'm going to do donate all that money uh, to St Mungo's which is the homeless charity which provides uh, accommodation and food and clothing for uh, homeless people in the West End which is a fantastic charity so um, I pay a little bit, bit of transaction costs on it so if you've uh, uh, bought a ticket that's £15 uh, at least £12 of that will be going to charity uh, unfortunately a percentage of it is a transaction fees which I pay uh, which comes out of my end of it but the rest of it I will donate to charity so that would be a nice thing to do uh, what else? Oh, uh, I can give you a refund. That's not a problem as well. With that, you get a full refund. Uh, if you can only get a refund uh, back to the credit card or debit card that was used to buy those tickets, I can't transfer the money to someone else. The system doesn't work that way. Uh, I, I, the money can only go back to the person who bought the tickets. Uh, or there's another option, which is oh, the kettle's about to brew. Let's do this, and then I'll do option five. There we go. Water in. Oh, mm, really did. I, I keep cutting my finger on my uh, my uh, soundproofing thing because it's got a, it's got a nut that's a bit annoying, and uh, I scrape my fingers along. It's horrible. Anyway, number five. This is came to me during the week. I've already made some people aware of this. Uh, before all this uh, COVID horribleness happened, I originally was going to do uh, a kind of special tours for, uh, not not like the regular Murder Mile tours that I do, but kind of the, uh, kind of, uh, for people who like listening to the, this podcast. And I'd already kind of half set it up, and but then 
the pandemic happened and I shut it down. I forgot that I'd done it. So that's the new idea. So uh, December the 12th will be the last Murder Mile walks. I won't be doing any more after that. Some of those stories might get cannibalised into the new Murder Mile uh, series, which would be nice. Uh, but what I'll do in an, on an ad hoc basis kind of in, in uh, 2022, so next year, I'll do a series of walks. The great thing is they're not. I'm not going to pre-plan them. I'm not going to script them. Therefore, I don't have to re- rehearse. They're not going to be on a regular basis. They might be once a month or every six weeks. Because my plan is uh, next year is to travel around on the boat and move around the country. But because I need to be back in London at least once a month to check my post and go to my doctors, my eye specialist and visit mates and things like that, I'm going to be in London anyway. So I thought to myself, let's have some fun. So I will do a tour for like, don't know, 20 people you know 30 don't know whatever uh and the idea is if you like in if you watch murder mile uh, basically we'll meet up we can have a chat it's 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 very kind of improvised kind of idea what you will do is uh, i could take you on tours of all the murder locations we can have a chat we can kind of uh you know maybe i might have some pictures with me i, don't, I haven't quite decided yet uh but the idea is we we just have a bit of a bit of fun and you know you can guide me you can say oh what about that episode we can't do reg christie obviously but because that's too far away but anything that's kind of soho mayfair Fitzrovia, Piccadilly, St Giles, St Anne's, kind of, yeah, Bloomsbury, that kind of area. You know, within walking distance, we can kind of cover it in about two hours, have a bit of fun, maybe have a pint afterwards. Uh, and of course, everyone who attends the tour gets a nice little packet with loads of, loads of goodies in there, of Murder Mile goodies. So I thought that might be something nice to do. It's less stress for me and it's also a bit of fun. So um, uh, I haven't set that up yet. That'll be something I'll, I'll organise in the year. But if... Uh, if you have a voucher for Murder Mile uh, and you don't want to use it up, but you're thinking to yourself, I might uh, come on the new Murder Mile walks in the new year, let me know. I'll put you on a, a kind of a, a list. And then when I'm launching that, I'll just send you a ticket. And that'll all be good. Fwah. Right. Uh, let's go and grab me tea. I've got my Diet Coke here, but I'm going to grab me tea and put, put my fake milk in. Fake milk time. Oh, yeah. Life is good with fake milk. Leave that there, let it dump. Oh, hard life this. I'm exhausted today because obviously it was Eva's birthday yesterday. Oh, tired, tired. I bought her 20, 26,452 presents. She's a little bit annoyed with me because it, it wasn't enough. You know, she's, she's high maintenance, is Eva. She likes, she likes lots of presents. And, uh, 26,000 wasn't enough. Oh, How can that woman have so many pairs of shoes? Anyway, um, let's do some questions for the quiz. Oh, just to say in this episode, uh, just in case there's any pedants out there, two things I'm going to point out. So uh, in the episode, I make reference to Cumis Constantiano. Um, now, I know that his name is Zumis. I'd actually meant, made a note, because every time someone's name is on there that I can't pronounce, I always kind of uh, double-check how it's pronounced, and then I put a little note to myself. Uh, but when it got to this episode, I was like, ah, shit, I had already previously checked that his name wasn't Kumis, it was Zumis, Zumus, as it's actually pronounced. Uh, but in episodes one and two, I'd already called him Kumis, and I'd already launched them, so I thought, do you know what, fuck it, 
I will just, pardon the language there, I will just stick with the pronunciation that I've done in parts one and two. Uh, and also it stops the pedants getting in touch, going, as people do. Uh, also, some people may come back to me and they'll go, oh, you misspelled the name Gonzalez. I think you find if you check the Daily Mail, his name is Gonzalez. G-O-N-Z-A-L-E-Z. Um, actually, his name isn't spelled G-O-N-Z-A-L-E-Z. It's actually spelled E-S. Uh, I've mu- checked this multiple times uh, on his medical records, on his birth certificate, um, on uh, the inquest into his his own details, and all the letters from his doctors as well. His his and his his name and his father's name is spelled G O N Z A L E S, but everyone else on every documentary and every article, including all the newspapers, have misspelled it. They've spelled it with an S, and that's wrong. So I'm sticking with the correct spelling. And if anyone comes back to me and goes, I think you're fine. And the people, I love when people do that, when they get, when they send me an email going, I think you're fine. I hate to point it out, but I think you'll find. If you start an email with the words, I think you'll find, I think means I don't know. So therefore, what you're saying is, I don't know, but it's what ignorant people write. Anyway, let's do the quiz. Yummy. Ooh, exciting. And, oh, what have I just done with my cake? This is, uh, in Morrison's the other day, uh, and the, uh, I was like, because I'm near a Morrison's. It's not, it's not the best Morrison's. It's nice inside, but it's, it looks like Russia in the 1980s. It's, it's like you come along some shelves. It's so badly stocked, and you come along, and there's some shelves, and there's like one potato. It literally is that. Anyway, yesterday they managed to uh, do some bloody donuts for once. They hadn't got the chocolate ones. I've just bought some jo- uh, some uh, uh, custard ones. Ooh, delicious! Got those. But they were doing uh, chocolate and orange donuts. Ooh, so I've got one of those to eat. Yummy. Right, Michael, let's do the quiz. Um, um, what, what I'm thinking about doing for this improvised tour as well, I'm thinking about doing a quiz in there as well. This is just an idea at the moment, having a bit of fun with the tours, not making it so stressful that I have to memorise things and it's all complicated. I just want it to be fun. So the idea is have a bit of a quiz and the winner wins a, a murder mile mug. All good. So you'll do the tour, but at the same time, you've got to kind of be on your toes as well. So um, question number one, what was the name of the road that the that uh, Kumis or Zumis uh, and his family lived on? Uh, so what was the name of the road the Zumis and his family lived on? Question number two. Uh, what did Zumas see? I'm, I'm using his proper name here. What did Zumas hit Daniel with? So what did Zoom? What did Zumas hit Daniel with? I love these details. Question three: What did his wife Christella? Uh, I hate that people do that. They they write Zumas and his wife, but so we can differentiate between them. I'm writing his wife. What did his wife Christella hit Daniel with? What did she hit Daniel with? That was the question. Um, question four. Where was Zumis stabbed? Question five. How did Daniel break his nose? Question six. What was Daniel's stepfather doing when he saw him running naked? Question seven. Which countries did Derek Robinson work in? Apart from England, obviously. Question eight. Uh, Derek and Jean did what as jobs? Question nine. Where did Daniel get out of the taxi near Derek and Jean's home? 
Mm. So when uh, Daniel was heading to Derek and Jean's home, where did he get out of the taxi? And uh, this end one is a hard one. Right, strap in. Question 10. What number bus did Daniel get from Makepeace Avenue? He was actually from Oxshot Avenue, but when he was leaving Derek and Jean's, what number bus did he get? Uh, okay, right. Done 15 minutes on that. Let's try not to do too much on this. Ooh, look at that donut. Maybe a day to two days old, but who cares? I'm going to wolf that down. Uh, so let's dive into some details. Let's dive into Daniel's uh, kind of breakdown on Monday, the 13th of September 2004. So I used a lot of these quotes in there. Uh, Daniel uh, said, That morning I was punching myself in the face trying to give myself black eyes, and I did have one black eye. I was just going mad. I've never been that ill before, not even when I committed my offences. I think it was a, a mode of self harm, but in a different type of way. I wanted to degrade myself, uh, self-degradation de to feel better. That's why I did did what I did. Uh, I don't know why I did it, to be honest. I have absolutely no idea. Um, I'm not going to go into some details because some of these details are questions. Uh, he said, before I committed the offences, I was seen running around Nap Hill Estate completely naked, round the shops, past all the pubs and everything. Don't forget, this was a, like a, all the kids were going in school, everyone was heading to work. Uh, ran back down the road, all the estate, I was completely naked. Um, let's miss Stephen Harper's quote. No, no, we'll use that. Uh, I got into, he said, his stepfather said, I got into my car, I heard movements upstairs. I knew Daniel was awake. I sat in my car, <coughs> doing something that is one of the questions. And the next thing I... See, I'm getting better at this. And the next thing I knew, Daniel came running up the drive, sprinted past me without any clothes on. This was approximately ten past eight in the morning. There were quite a few schools where I live, uh, so there were people about, and, and it was quite a busy time. I thought I would drive to see where he was going and what was going on. I couldn't find him. I drove around the village for a bit and then I phoned Leslie at work, who's Daniel's mum, uh, and she said to go and check if he's back home. Uh, now, there were several reports to the police that morning of a, a, a naked man running around Knapp Hill. Uh, two police officers have mentioned PC Fellows and Rowley were dispatched and they called a Knapp Hill at just after 8am, so probably about 10 past as mentioned. So not long afterwards, both officers... Uh, were unable to locate Daniel. His, even his dad couldn't locate him as well, so no one really knew where he had went. Uh, at that point, it, they didn't know that it was Daniel Gonzalez. They just were aware that there was a naked man running around. Um, uh, what else have we got? Uh, so, yeah, as mentioned, uh, Stephen made it back home because Leslie was like, maybe he's he's probably come home. Uh, he said, I went back, opened up the front door and I knew he was at home because I could see through the living room window. I could see him pacing up and down. I walked in and there was no sound at all. He had obviously heard me come in uh, and it went quiet. I said, Daniel, I've been looking for you in Knapp Hill. And he said, I wasn't in Knapp Hill, man, in a strange voice that I've never heard before. I thought that I thought something's wrong here. I just I could just sense that something wasn't right. Um, so. Uh, as mentioned, Steve and his stepfather decided to take him down to the police station. Obviously, if you take him down to the police station, you can kind of get 
what he was trying to do was get a mental health intervention in place and kind of, you know, because the police have, although they have limited powers, they have powers to kind of stop him and under the Mental Health Act have got the powers to kind of take him to a hospital and things like that. So, you know, have him, the police have got the powers to kind of have him detained. Uh, but obviously it's the mental health professionals who have the, the major power to be able to section him. But but kind of, you know, Stephen and Leslie knew that this, this was kind of a key first step for them uh steven said that he went to the police station expecting um uh daniel to be taken to hospital because of his mental state uh this kind of thing had happened before he hadn't run around naked but it's kind of you know when da- when daniel has an episode they're able to go to the police the police are able to section him uh steven said he spoke to a receptionist at woking police station her notes uh afterwards seem to be have gone missing uh the report states that mr harper refused to give his name and address as he did not want police involvement uh but uh da, 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 uh, uh, Stephen disputes this uh, uh, Surrey police declined to comment on the report or its recommendation that reception staff should have bound books for note keeping this is why the notes were missing because it was on a scrap of paper as opposed to a bound book uh, so after that uh, as mentioned Leslie's, uh, Leslie his mother decided to call uh, the, the duty social worker for the community mental health team uh, and she kept calling and calling but just wasn't able to get through finally she got through eventually and said my son's running around the streets naked and he's uh, jumping down the st- stairs and trying to uh, 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 to see if he can break his nose see I'm being good uh, if I'm running around ra- if I'm running around the st- uh, um, uh, this, sorry this is Daniel on this but he said if I'm running around the estate naked they should have acted um, uh, but he'd uh, you know they didn't arrest him for that they just kind of put it as you know uh he's unwell he's gone home everything should be okay now uh what else do we got we did the bits in the episode so she came home and found it found knives strewn all around the kitchen uh she tried to get uh, several attempts to get someone to assess him but she was told that she had to assess him himself and then if she had a problem she would take him to she could take him to a local psychiatric hospital which as we've seen before is always a problem because he tends to be treated as an outpatient when he's there whereas what they wanted was him to be treated as an inpatient to be taken in and assessed and to be sectioned but they didn't know they would just take him to his uh, be an outpatient he would be seen by a doctor and the doctor as we've seen before would go He's fine, he's okay, yeah, everything's all right. Because don't forget, Daniel's kind of moods shift all the time. Nothing is ever consistent, which is why they're unable to kind of pin down his diagnosis, because sometimes sometimes he's high mania, sometimes he's low, sometimes he's depressed, you know, it's all over the shop. Um, uh, Leslie contacted the mental health social worker. uh, 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 she said uh, she described him as indifferent and passive this made me perturbed and very angry uh, and uh, you know everyone's kind of saying that if that social worker's attitude would have been different at that moment then none of this really would have happened but if you look at the past even even in the past sometimes some people take him seriously but some of the mental health professionals didn't take him seriously the problem is it's hard for them to work out as they said before, whether he really was a paranoid schizophrenic or, as the parole officer said, um, he's just a silly little boy. So that's the problem that's going throughout. There's no consistency in this at all. And that's the problem with mental health, really. is It's not 
as I mentioned before, it's not like a broken leg. It's not consistent. You can't just look at it and go, there's the problem. You know, you have to take a lot on face value. You have to hope that people are doing their job properly. You hope that people have got the right expertise. And depending on whether they're drugs counsellors or psychiatrists or probation officers or whatever, everyone has a speciality. Therefore, if they don't know what's going on, they go back to default. You know. Uh, what else did we have? Let's look at uh, Zoomus. Uh, so we don't really know what number uh, on the road the attack happened. God damn it, I've searched, but I have not been able to find out exactly what number on the road uh, they lived at. But given the fact that they probably still live there, I probably won't mention that anyway. Um, if you look at the route from uh, Tottenham Hale down to uh, Zoomis' house and then to Derek and Jean's house, it literally is, it's southwest, it's literally a straight run all the way. Big boat going past, and unfortunately, an annoying uh, red, wide, uh, red, grey, wide beam. Everywhere around here is just full of grey, wide beams. It's just, oh, get, get. paint your boat, make it nice. Oh, I don't mind if people have grey, wide beams. That's fine. You're welcome to have one. But I just think if you're going to live on a, a boat, don't just have the the, the basic undercoat colour. Jazz it up, make it look nice. Decorate it yourself. I don't fucking care. <laughs> right. Oh, God. Uh, oh, you can tell you. I'm either on sugar high or sugar low. One or the other. Um, uh, so, yeah, this, this is really weird. So if, this is the point where the story starts to really change. As we've seen, Daniel was murdering people or trying to attack them in isolated places. And then for no particular reason, he turns to houses. He starts going to try and kill them inside houses, which doesn't make sense. Maybe it started because... He didn't have knives, because don't forget, he threw away the knives after the uh, murder of uh, Kevin Malloy. So we didn't have knives, so we needed knives. So where are you going to get knives? In people's houses. It was too early in the morning to go to shops. I've had a look. There's pretty much nothing open. There's nothing. The route he was taken down, there's kind of like convenience stores. That's pretty much all there is. Some couple of cafes, but even at that time in the morning, there wasn't much open. Um, so if you need knives, where are you going to find them? Uh, now don't forget he had a small history of burglary he had one charge for burglary we're not too sure how many burglaries he did this was when he was uh, younger and when he was homeless at the time and he was kind of going through a bit of a, a bit of a drugs problem uh, so so he was partially experienced at breaking into houses I don't don't forget it's not actually that difficult it's it's kind of late summer it's September most people probably have their windows open anyway or as we all know you can kind of even though people have, have locked their door quite a lot of people leave their keys in the door so it's not it's not difficult to kind of break a little bit of a window grab in unlock the door and you're in um but it was weird zoomis's house he'd done no surveillance on that we don't know why he was there he seems to have picked this street at random it's very weird why he chose that but he got into the kitchen he uh, grabbed uh, either one or some of their knives we reckon it's some of their knives uh, and because we don't know exactly which address they lived at, uh, what we do know is, because I, I looked at the maps, uh, you can't get access to the back garden, which is where the kitchen is, by going in through the main road. So you have to go down Haringey Passage and either to uh, uh, Luzanne Road or Falkland Road, which is the, the roads on either side to gain access to the back garden. So we're not too sure which way he came in. Ah... Uh, what else is there? I think that's, uh, 
see, there's my note saying Zoomasur, Michael. Oh, Michael. Um, I think that's... I won't do too much on that because we've kind of done pretty much everything I put into that attack. Uh, in, that went into the episode, so I'm not going to really do too much. We know that he grabbed a taxi and uh, headed uh, towards Highgate. That's fine. It's not giving away the question. Um, he would have uh, still been splattered with blood of Kevin Malloy by that point, but don't forget it was early morning, so people may not have noticed. He was wearing jeans, they may not have noticed. Uh, so we don't know. Well, and obviously, we don't know how bloodied he was. Um, don't forget, there's people kind of walking around in the mornings, heading off to work, and you, you know, quite often I've seen kind of workmen going into into town and they've got all, all manner of shit over their clothes because you know, if you're a workman. What's the point in putting on a fresh pair of clothes if you're going to get them dirty again? So people may have just thought, you know, he was off to work he was, or he's been out for the night having a bit of fun. So, you know, we don't really pay that much attention to people. So it's no surprising that people didn't really notice that he was covered in blood. Uh, again, Derek and Jean Robertson, their, their address was really hard to find. Um, I am listing what their address was there because they're both dead. Uh, therefore they're not still living there anymore well that took a bloody long time to find that address because it was not listed anywhere uh, and I only found a couple of uh, images of it online uh, and it's not covered by Google Maps because uh, it's a private estate but I was able to track it down you're welcome you're welcome uh, so what else just having a look to see if there's anything else that we really need to say about this uh nope no i don't know because many of these are already questions already and we've already covered it in this episode but they seem like really nice people derek and gene seem really nice they obviously work really hard all of their lives it was a nice house it was a three-bedroomed house pre-war timber fronted semi-detached uh kind of had a little nice little set of steps going down some trees in the front garden a kind of a uh, an arch before you get in so it's slightly shadowed on the door therefore anyone coming towards the door would be just seen as a, a bit of a silhouette uh, that's why i like these little pictures because they give me a bit of an info insight and then i can think my way around it as opposed to just writing what the press have done what i try and do is i look at the pictures and i try and picture what they would see from the other end and what everyone sees and hears and thinks and you know i think it just makes for a better episode rather than just saying the man walked down the street and then he got stabbed. Do you know? <clears throat> anyway, uh, I think that's it. I don't think I want to say any more. Uh, we used most of Daniel's quote in there where he said, ready, steady, go. And then I jumped up and stuck it all the way in, i.e. the knife. It was such a long knife. There was no chance for the poor guy. I stabbed him once and I stabbed him again. I wanted to kill him quickly, so I stabbed him in the throat. The woman was really strong and I started feeling really sorry for her. I went through her throat and I stabbed her loads of times in the heart because I wanted her to die quickly. Lovely. What a pleasant chap. Uh, these are all taken from the interviews that he gave at uh, Hoban Police Station uh, afterwards. Uh, and oh, whereas with that, you know, he would have had a duty solicitor with him and he would have been told, you know, you're, you're perfectly entitled to say no comment to everything, but he didn't. He just wanted to talk about it. Um, this time the attack was done with a 12-inch knife. This would have been stolen from uh, Kumis's house. Again, he wasn't wearing his uh, Friday the 13th mask. That was back at his house with uh, Marie Harding's DNA on it. He didn't have any other masks. He didn't seem to have a Freddy Krueger mask, which 
you know. It seems weird that he, because he said I won't be a Freddy Krueger for the day, and yet no one calls him the Friday the 13th killer because uh, he was wearing a Jason mask. But then again, that's the way the press, uh, especially the tabloids, work. Uh, pre- tabloids. Yeah. Um, uh, what else we got? As mentioned, he, uh, he. This is weird that he didn't run. This is weird because normally, he, normally this was his thing that he'd stab someone, then he'd run. Whether he didn't run because he was in the confines of someone else's house, or whether he didn't run because he was ecstatic, because technically, technically. He'd become a serial killer. We don't know. But um, it was in their house that he decided that he wanted to have a shower. So he was currently undressing in their kitchen when um, the decorator came in and disturbed him. Uh, what else was there? Uh, I'm just going through all my notes. Uh, there's loads of notes, but it's kind of it's a lot of them that we've kind of already done. It's uh, it was said. There's two different things that it is said that Daniel said to the decorator when the decorator came in and saw him kind of half naked and kind of surrounded by blood and dead bodies. Either Daniel said sorry about this, mate, before fleeing. Or he said, would you like a cup of tea? Or he could have said both. Um, but we don't know which. So what I've, I've opted for, sorry about this, mate, because it sounds, it sounds nearer to what he said to Peter King when he was like, oh, sorry about this, I can't help it, I'm a schizophrenic. Do you know, it, it's, it's more apologetic, whereas would you like a cup of tea sound, just sounds stupid. Also, it reminds me of Reg, and I didn't want to confuse him. So I opted for the sorry about this, mate. Uh, what else we got? He uh, he uh, dashed out through the back garden. Um, p- a police helicopter was called, and it kind of scoured around Hampstead Heath and kind of a uh, hundred yards around the, the uh, murder scene. Police described the suspect as white and in his twenties. Uh, what else? But obviously, by that point, he'd already got on the bus. No one had really noticed him, and he kind of disappeared. It wasn't really a, a kind of a fast getaway. He was kind of just on the bus, uh, chugging along. It's stopping every hundred feet or so, as buses do. Uh, no one really noticed. Uh, we don't know much about the lady whose door he knocked on. The elderly lady, he knocked on her door. She opened the door, saw that he had a knife in his hand. Uh, for some reason, he didn't kill her, and we don't know why. Uh, but then again, that's Daniel, isn't it? There's so many chances that he had to kill other people, and he didn't. He could have killed when he was on the bus going to King's Cross. He had knives on him. He'd just killed people. He was all pent up. He could have just... There probably was 30 people on the bus. He could have just stabbed them all on the bus. Then he would be one of Britain's biggest serial killers, or spree killers, but he didn't. Uh, so we don't know. We don't know uh, what really was going on in his mind. Hmm. Anyway... I think that's it. There's my little note that says, Michael, answer the questions. So I'm going back. I'm going to answer the questions to the quiz. And then I'm going to have my donut. Ooh, check it out. I've also got uh, some Kit Kats as well. Kit Kats! Uh, Okay, let's do answers to the questions. What was the name of the road uh, that Zoomus and his family lived on? It was Frobisher Road. Question two. What did Zoomis hit Daniel with? It was a pink baby cradle. Question three. What did his wife, Christella, hit Daniel with? Uh, It was her slippers. 
it's an interesting note to go back if you go back to the trader and the devil's child episode don't forget in there that we did a whole breakdown of different types of burglars and there are different types as mentioned i think it was three types and two of the key ones that were mentioned were opportunists and confronters and it's interesting to see what daniel is because you would given the fact that he's a bit of a coward when he's with a lot of the actions that he's doing you would say that he's an opportunist kind of the way he breaks into steel knives but he's clearly a confronter on here so i'd love to know more about what he did on on the these the burglaries that he's committed but unfortunately we don't know much about that uh, question four uh, where was zuma stabbed he was stabbed in the arm and the chest uh, question five how did daniel try to break his nose uh his own nose uh he was jumping face first onto the wheelie bin question six what was daniel's stepfather doing when he saw his when he saw daniel running naked oh got burpees he didn't have burpees uh he was rolling a ciggy i.e a cigarette question seven i haven't had my tea yet uh, that's not the question. Uh, question seven. Which countries did Derek Robinson work in, excluding England? It was Uganda and Nigeria. Uh, question eight. Derek and Jean did what as jobs? Uh, Derek was a paediatrician and Jean was a communications officer for Christian Aid and a music teacher. Uh, question nine. Where did Daniel get out of the taxi near Derek and Jean's home? Uh, it is believed to be Highgate Cemetery, which kind of makes sense because that's really in that area. That's the only direction. That's the only kind of main thing in that area that you could kind of head towards. If you didn't know the area, that's where you would head to. Uh, question 10. Uh, what number bus did Daniel get from Makepeace Avenue? He was on the 214 heading to Moorgate. Lovely. Well, that's that done. <sighs> Hope you all enjoyed that. Uh, that was the end of Murder Mile for this week. Obviously, we've got part four next week. And then after that, we go back to uh, one-parters, which I'm looking forward to. Because, oh, these four-parters are a bloody nightmare to get your head around. But I'm enjoying them. Anyway, um, uh, stay safe. Have yourselves a good week. Lots of love. Be good. Bye-bye. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.